the book of Acts, chapter 8. Chapter 7, Stephen is one of the deacons who is preaching the gospel to the Hellenistic Jews, those who have, were full Jews, but they had Jewish influence in them. Uh, I'm sorry, had Greek influence in them, and so they, they had Greek culture. They grew up around Greek settings. And Stephen began to debate with some of these people. They began to debate with him as he went out and preached the gospel. His ministry got spread to a different area. It was started out where he was just ministering to the widows, handing out bread, and that went on out to different places where he was from. And so he began to preach the gospel to them. And some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, most likely Paul's, uh, Paul's uh, synagogue, because they're men from Cyrene and, and uh, areas where he was from. They raised up false witnesses against Stephen. And chapter 7 recalls Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leaders. And there was a trial that was brought before them. And and he was accused of several things. And Stephen, he responds to these accusations by basically just retelling Israel's history. And the pattern that Stephen brings out was that the people of Israel, the Jews, especially the leaders to their histories, always rejected the people, the messengers, the prophets that God sent the first time, and they recognized them the second time. They always rejected God's messengers the first time, the second time they remembered. And so he, he tells them, hey, Joseph... He uses Joseph example. Those of you who went through Genesis with me, remember? They rejected Joseph the first time. The second time, they recognized him. They accepted him. Moses, same thing. First time, rejected him. Second time, they received him. Both were rejected, but uh, recognized the second time. And he's weaving this in through chapter 7 while he's talking to them. And, uh, and this ultimately points to their Messiah, who they rejected the first time, but will re- receive the second time. And so they accused Stephen of rejecting God, rejecting the law, rejecting the temple. And it was, those are fighting words, right? And uh, they had, uh, and the reality was that they were the ones who rejected all the messengers God had sent. They disobeyed the laws. They misunderstood God to the point where they worshiped a building instead of the God of the building, They didn't really know who God was. And so they worshipped him on the outside, but there was no inward relationship with him. And they did not realize that the law, the prophets, you know, Moses, the temple, they all pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. They all pointed to Jesus. And that is his point. You've rejected him. And Stephen was at the point where he finishes his sermon. He's going to give them some application now. In chapter 7, verse 51, just reading through the end, it says, you stiff-necked people, very great application. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And that's what the core of what was going on. They always resisted the Spirit of God. It was God who sent the, uh, the prophets. It was God who sent Moses. I'm sorry, it was the Spirit who sent Moses. It was the Spirit who sent the law. It was the Spirit who sent the prophets. It was the Spirit who sent the Messiah. And he rejected them over and over and over. And he says in verse 52, Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given you through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God 
and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opening and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. And chapter 8, verse 1 picks up, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And the reason why this emphasis, as we see, we see in, the, uh, uh, in the coming chapters, is that Saul is the tip of the spear of the persecution of the church here that's going to be happening. And this is part of the reason that Stephen is, is emphasized, his story is emphasized, to give background on, this, on Saul of Tarsus, who, by the way, wrote most of the New Testament. And so Stephen is killed here in verse 1. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. And so this was the tipping point. The religious leaders had had enough and they began to openly persecute the church in order to stop the movement that was happening in Jerusalem. They were tired of the attention being taken off of them. They were tired of these things going on that were outside of their power, their control. They were men who loved power. That was what they were about. And they used religious garb as a guide to control people, manipulate people. And so this was the tipping point. They were angry. And as a result, the church that was over 10,000 strong, at least by this point, at least, a lot of people was scattered. And many fled Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and the areas around Jerusalem, which, is, which are the areas to the, around Jerusalem and to the north there. Now, when we heard, hear the words Jerusalem and Samaria, they were scattered to, to, uh, out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Our spirit should wake up. Because what did Jesus say in Acts 1-8? You are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will by my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, and where else? And in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up to this point, it seems that everybody was centered there just in Jerusalem. Stephen got out a little bit, and some of the other people were going different places, but it was mainly that work of God right there in Jerusalem, just like he said it would. That's where it starts. But the message of the gospel was tied up, in the, which is tied up in the people of God. The gospel is in you. That is how the gospel goes places. You are the gospel, so to speak, what Christ has done in and through you, Jesus in you. That is the message we're sending. Look, look at God is in us. He's changed us. We're born again. We're changed. And we, what God has given us, we give to others. That message of the gospel was tied up in the people, Right? but was never intended to stain Jerusalem. And Jesus said that they'd be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so it was because of this great persecution now that the gospel would begin to move in a powerful way out from Jerusalem. And we're reading, as we were going to read in chapter 8, about some of those encounters. But you know, Jesus did tell the disciples to go. Did he not say to go into all the world? He said, go into all the world. It was very clear. And make disciples. But Jesus told them before they did anything to wait. Go into Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 1 that they were all scattered except for the apostles. Everybody got scattered except for the apostles. 
You know, some say they were being disobedient and God had to cause great persecution in order for them to get them going. You know, I've thought that. I've thought that through. And it, it may be so a little bit. But sometimes, uh, you know, we stay put because of comfort. Anybody stay put because of comfort? I like to stay put because of comfort. You know, or disobedience. Or sometimes, you know, just because we don't know what to do. We don't know how it's supposed to happen. How this is supposed to play out. Where to go. When to go. You know, the Lord gave the apostles the the blueprint, the great commission. He's given us the blueprint. But how does that work out? How does that play out in day-to-day life? How are we to go into all the world? How does that work? You know, they knew where they were supposed to be. Start in Jerusalem. Wait there. Receive the Spirit. Then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. They know how that works. They don't know exactly the details of how that's going to happen. And so how are they to know when to go out? You know, sometimes the Lord speaks plainly through his word. Or as we pray together, the Lord will make it very clear as to what we're to do. Things that I don't need to pray about loving my neighbor. I might need to pray about how I can love my neighbor, but it is a command. It's not something I need to pray about. I know that I'm called to do it. You know what I'm saying? But how do I, do I know I'm going to take this job or I'm going to speak to this person? What timing? You know, how, how am I going, am I going to buy this house? And if so, when and how? And all, you know, I mean, all these types of things. Trying to discern God's will. And sometimes he does speak plainly to us through the word or through prayer or the fellowship of the believers or a combination as we've seen in Acts. But sometimes he allows circumstances into our lives that may seem difficult to get us moving, to get us thinking, to get us going. You know, I've seen this in my own life uh, when I was on staff at Calvary Chapel for five years. Uh, My heart grew discontent, but I didn't know how to go. I didn't know. I mean, this is all, the Lord took me out of the world. I was in the ministry. What do you do? This is all I've known. And so God had to create the circumstance, the discontent into where I would move on. And that seemed like such a hard time, a hard thing in my heart at the time. But what God did is he freed me up to learn more about him and to begin to study more deeply and and to develop pastoral type things in my life to branch out from worship ministry which I always love and will it'll be a part of my life. You know what I mean? But it came through hard times. Leaving San Diego. Difficult to leave family. But the blessings on the other side are immensely blessings. Look at you. I mean, Jesus is true. When he speaks and says, you'll be blessed, not only in this, you know, you'll be, well, we're going to read it in just a minute. You're going to be blessed. Difficult, yes. Especially leaving Mexican food that you love. Just kidding. Well, not really, but... <laughs> yes. There was a house, you know, we'd, we were, we'd never been in a house before. We moved into a house over here on, you know, off of Hussey. You know, and, and the circumstances to that to which we had to leave were just like, really, Lord? You know, just getting settled, just moving three times in two years, and then finally he moved us over to this other place. And the Lord gave us a cat, and he gave us a bunch of neighbors. And the relationships that were developed there, God is bringing these kids from broken homes to our Wednesday night youth group. 
I mean, the things that God is doing and the people and the ministries that are happening is a result of, oh gosh, you know, oh, my comfort, oh, I want to have, and, you know, we can, we can get this in complaining mode, and, and believe me, it's, it's, it's a lot more serious when your family's being ripped out of your house, okay? And so I'm trying to relate to American culture, <laughs> you know, a little bit. We're, we're, we have difficult circumstances, but sometimes the Lord leads us through difficult the difficulties are through circumstances that are out of our control. He leads us to him. And there's a great book called Experiencing God by Henry and Richard Blackaby. And in this book, I, I really, I love, you know, take it with a grain of salt, like anything that is recommended to you. But God speaks uh, to his people. He re- reveals himself, his purposes, and his ways. God speaks through the Bible. He speaks through prayer, through circumstances. He speaks through the church. God's invitation leads us to crisis or belief. There's a lot of great people who have wrestled with this, but this is some really practical material, but you can look at it afterwards. But that's a great book. How do you know what to do? The will of God, you know, searching it out. And he points to scripture, and I love that. But it could just be the disciples were, were comfortable, you know, whatever, a little thick as we've seen them in the scriptures, like me. I can relate, but what I do see, and this is the part people usually beat up on the disciples there, and I understand that. But what I do see is a group of men who were once scattered when their shepherd was scattered, and now they said, not, not this time. Not this time. Remember, the sheep were scattered when the shepherd was struck, and they all went their ways. They went back to fishing and did all that stuff. Now when persecution came, when the death of a loved one came, they said, we're not going to run anymore. We're not running we're not running. So I see a, gra- uh, a group of guys who are willing to stick to it no matter what the cost. There's something to be said for that, to hold fast to your calling no matter what, through thick and thin. Eventually, they would move out. Eventually, they would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Thomas would go to India and die. Bartholomew would go to India and uh, other people would go to Ethiopia and Spain and they would, they would end up going all over the place. Church history... Uh, tells us you know <clears throat> but what do i take what i do take away from this is the enemy will persecute god's church when we are being effective witnesses of jesus he comes in and he starts persecuting causing difficulties hardships and that's what's going on to stop the move of god's spirit to discourage them to make them fearful and frightened of stepping out further in what god has called them to do you know and when the enemy intends evil for us, God, in the same time, will use those things, those purposes for good. We have a God who can do that and who is about that. Something that seems so horrific, the persecution of the men and women of the church in Jerusalem actually caused the message to spread as these spirit-filled people were ripped from their homes and run all over the country they began to share what was in them. And they began to bump into people that they never would have bumped in before had they not experienced that. And many of you know that who have had physical difficulties and you're in hospitals and there's a nurse who has to take care of you. <clears throat> and you get to be a light in that situation that you wouldn't otherwise be in, you wouldn't choose to be in. Remember, on the surface... There might be sometimes satanic opposition the Lord might allow in. And circumstances seem bleak and they're hard. And it just seems like all is lost. But realize that God is at work. 
God is at work, especially in those times. You know, I think of our church and difficulties, you know, look at the numbers and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and financial difficulties. People are sick all the time. There's just hardships going on. The school. And when we look at those things, we can go, just go give up in despair and go, oh gosh, you know, forget it. Forget it. And that's exactly what the enemy would have us do, personally and corporately. Just say, forget it. You know, but the same circumstances can also be used by God to bring desperation in the hearts of God's people, to grow us closer to him individually and as a fellowship, a renewal of our relationship with God, you know. And therein lies the challenge to us. What will we do in response to the circumstances that we face when hardships come, when persecution comes, when these things are going on in our lives, individually and as a fellowship? You know, perhaps it's a call to stand, Perhaps it's a call to move. What is the Spirit doing? What is he saying? You know, the Lord might be moving in new directions. He might be saying, stand. I mean, just talk about individually. But regardless, will we run to the Lord? You know, brothers and sisters, I highly recommend this book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've done two books today. Fox's Book of Martyrs. F-O-X-E apostrophe S, Book of Martyrs by John Fox. And it's just a history of, throughout the church of all the murders in the church, beginning with the apostles all the way um, up. And it, it is a fascinating read. I highly recommend that. I highly recommend the biographies, especially during the missionary movements. You've seen these men and women who have left all and faced incredible uh, peril and, and sometimes just destitute lives. They're just ripped apart, kind of like the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, I highly recommend reading the stories of the persecuted church in the world today. And in light of Scripture and the ongoing persecution of God's church, set your heart upon the rock of Jesus Christ, the sure rock. Because today, in this increasing hostility towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, God wants to raise up men and women from here who will stand for Jesus Christ, who will be salt and light and not let their saltiness go away, and stand for righteousness, stand for the truth, stand for the gospel. People filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the truth, filled with love. You might be saying, not me. Yes, you. You. Especially you who feels totally disqualified, the least of these. Jesus is picking on you today and saying, come here. I want to make you into a fisher of men. I want to make you into a light. He doesn't take all the wonderful, high, shiny things quite often. He does. But he often takes the things that are not. Because it's his power in us that would be magnified when we are broken people. But today, it is increasingly hostile. And Jesus said that whoever holds onto their lives will lose them. But whoever loses their lives for, for me, for my sake and the gospel, will find them. Jesus said, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions. Notice the, notice the promise there? Along with persecutions. In the age of 
and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last. In the last verse, that's Mark 10, 29 through 31. He says it in a couple different gospels. But Jesus left all. Church, this is it. Jesus left all and he gave all. And we should have that same heart, a heart set firmly upon the gospel that those feet that are swift with the gospel, that should be our heart. Does this mean we're to go to the Congo? I don't know. What's God calling you to do? Does it mean we're to go to San Diego of all places? Maybe. Does it mean you might need to stay right here in, in Walla Walla? Could be. Does it mean you might need to walk across the street? Most definitely. The Lord's calling us to this. It does mean that we must live in light of what we are. We are witnesses. You are a witness of Jesus Christ. And you're either a good one or a bad one, right? You're a witness of Jesus Christ living like Jesus, thinking like Jesus, giving like Jesus, touching like Jesus, you know, which is loving like our Father who gave what was most precious to him so that we might live. And when persecution comes, and it will, when we're living this way, Jesus promised it, then we will continue to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and wherever. And my question to you today is, are you kind of stuck Are you needing some help? Are you needing wisdom? Are you needing guidance in your life? Do you feel stuck in your relationship with the Lord? Or hard times happen to you and you feel like things have changed and you wouldn't have done it that way? Open your eyes. God is with you. He's there. He wants to speak to you. He wants to use the circumstances that you find yourself in where they're hard or easy to be his light. In the church in Acts, it came into great persecution. They all fled to Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Verse 2, it says, oh gosh, we're only on verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women to put them in prison. So godly men buried Stephen. It's okay for us to mourn when people die who are brothers and sisters. Godly men mourned. It's okay to weep with those who weep. It's not the time to work, to claim the verse, all things work together, bud. It's time to just weep. You know, there'll be a time for the Lord to speak that later. And this was a time for great sorrow for the church because Saul began to destroy the church. And he's going to soon learn in the next chapter that he can't do that. Jesus isn't going to let it happen. But Saul, he's a religious he has religious zeal. And he went from house to house throwing people in jail and probably more. Today in Iraq, we have religious zealots going from house to house in the name of Islam, killing men and women, beheading children, many who are Christians. It's going on right now. Right now in Iraq. And this isn't an isolated thing that happened 2,000 years ago. This is happening now. Read about the persecuted church in India and and all these other places. I mean, there's things happening to your brothers and sisters out there. And we must be praying for our brothers and sisters and the persecuted church who are killed today and removed from their homes just like was happening here in Acts 8. And Father, we lift them up to you right now. We ask that you would be with them, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would protect them, that you would cause them to have wisdom on where to go and where to run. And Father, would you just send your angels to stop this madness? And we pray that you would, uh, wherever these people are scattered, you would send your word in spite of it, but help them as they're mourning, Lord, and they're weeping over their children and the people who are broken. Be with them, Lord. 
Verse four, those who've been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Again, the main theme of Acts is preaching the word. Do you see that over and over and over in Acts? They preached the word, and they preached the word, and they preached the word, and they preached the word. It happened, the church grew, the church multiplied, the church added. Every time there was an opposition to the word, God had to come in and fix things. And the church would not grow, would not add. Things had to be taken away until that was supreme in their lives, until that was supremely happening as it should in the church. He elevates his word above his name. That's crazy. I can't even think about that. What he says above his name. But we see that pattern of persecution and then uh, from the outside, then from the inside, from the outside, from the inside. And the same thing's happening with us, church. Persecution from the outside. People get discouraged. Persecuting from the inside. There's division. Then from the outside, then from the inside. That's what happens. And it's all to stop the word. It's to discourage us. It's to stop us from proclaiming the light. To get us sidetracked from the main thing. And now the church is being pre- persecuted big time. It's scattered. And now the word is being preached wherever they went by those who were scattered. And now it tells us of Philip. And we're just going to quickly read through Philip here, verse 5. And he went down to the city in, in Samaria and proclaimed the, mes- uh, the Messiah there. You didn't go to Samaria because Samaritans were the unclean Jews. He went there anyways. The gospel went to Samaria. And that when, he's, when he says you went down to Samaria, you're always going down when you're from, in Jerusalem. Everything's down from Jerusalem. So it's actually north. They're going north into that area of Galilee, a little bit south of it. And so he went there and he proclaimed the Messiah, verse 6. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw signs he performed... They all paid close attention to what he said. For the shrieks and impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in the city. And so the gospel spread, and it spreads its freedom. And when there's freedom happening, people, there's joy. There's joy. The mark that the gospel is happening in our lives, the mark that the gospel is in this church is joy. How's that working out for you? Do you have joy in your life? Fruit of the Spirit, joy, right? Think about that. Verse 9 gives us a little more details about what's actually happening in Samaria. In verse 9 it says, Now for some time a man named Simon, who had practiced sorcery, that's magic, in the city, and amazed all the people in Samaria, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. Have you ever met a magician who didn't claim he was great? <laughs> this, is, this is like an old thing. So anyways, uh, anyways, he had the name, the great power of God, you know. This guy was so good, whether it was sleight of hand or it was actually demonic power, it was, it was, it was really amazing. In verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. And that word for sorcery is magic. It's not pharmakeia, which is where we get... Uh, pharmacy kind of drugs and things like that, demonic type of stuff. This is just magic. So it's sleight of hand or something to do with optical illusions or something like that. Whether it's demonic or just learned, it isn't clear. But whatever it was, it was convincing. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Praise God. He's a believer. 
God wants to remove people from false things, right? But we're going to see a struggle here. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And so he was really attracted to that supernatural aspect of Philip, the Holy Spirit. And when the apostles, verse 14, in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, And then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so Philip preaches the good news. People believe and are baptized. They're saved. Amen? Simon was one of them. And Simon was astonished at the power that Philip had. And you can tell whatever he had was nothing in comparison of what Philip was doing. And verse verse 14 tells us that although the people had believed and were baptized, and this is the same as accepting the word of God there, they had accepted the word. This was demonstrated through their obedience in baptism. They were saved. But they did not yet have the Holy Spirit, which throws us a theological wrench. How can you be saved and not yet have the Holy Spirit? What are they talking about there? And this is where theologians go back and forth, and depending on people's backgrounds, they tend to hammer out what their views are. Now, some of us might be saying, hey, I thought you received the Holy Spirit when you were born again. And as, have I, taught, as I have taught, yes, you receive the Holy Spirit when you're born again. It is impossible to be born again without the Holy Spirit regenerating you, without him coming to live inside of you. So, yes, you receive the Holy Spirit when you are born again. And so, why don't they have the Holy Spirit? This is the question. What did they mean they didn't receive the Holy Spirit? And this verse and others tend to point people towards what is commonly called the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that basically, there's variations of it, but basically what they're saying is that there's a separate, distinct relationship with the Holy Spirit apart from salvation. In other words, uh, again, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will be with you and then he will be in you. And then later on he said, and he will be upon you. And so that in, with, and upon relationship is what some people teach. And so, again, I went through this in the Holy Spirit series that Basically, the Holy Spirit's the one who is with you and he brings you to salvation. He convinces you of your sins. And when you say, yes, I'm a sinner, I need salvation, then he, becomes, he comes in you and you're a new creation. You're now born of the Spirit, correct? And then that upon which people believe is the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry. And so when we accept the, the gospel, the word, then he dwells in us, making us new creation. And then the upon relationship with this doctrine teaches, what some people believe, uh, with the Holy Spirit would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a separate, distinct experience with the Holy Spirit, which is for the empowering of service. Now, some teach that Acts 1 was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the Jews in Samaria. Well, Acts chapter 1 was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Jews. Acts chapter 8 is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. I don't know why they get a special group, but they do. And then later on, the, uh, the Gentiles. You'll read about that later. So there's some people who 
part, part it out that way. All I can say is that the disciples re- received the Spirit of God in John twenty twenty two. Remember that? Jesus is standing there, is really reversed, and he says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20, verse 22, said, receive the Spirit. And then again in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon him, right? And so you can see why people are going, wait, there's two different things going on here. There's two different things going on here. We see the apostles accepting the word. Uh, we see, I'm sorry, we see people accepting the word like here in Acts and in 9, uh, chapters 8 and 9, and in, and in 19. They received the Holy Spirit after and before baptism. And so it's all mixed up. <laughs> and so what I'm saying is that uh, from what I see in Scripture, being baptized with the Holy Spirit can, can be a separate experience from conversion. I think, that, I think that's an absolutely biblical teaching. You see it happening distinctly from salvation, and I believe you see it happening with salvation. And so I'm not going to put a lid on it and say this is the way it works. I'm saying that yes, you receive, you definitely, Paul teaches, you receive the Holy Spirit when you are born again, but perhaps there is that ability, that relationship with the Lord to receive more, a separate, distinct outpouring. And I would say that the only way that we can discern about the Holy Spirit is go to the fruit. You go to the fruit. What is the Holy Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? And if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then you need the Holy Spirit <laughs> to fill your life once again. And we see also the doctrine of the refilling continually of the Holy Spirit. We're not to be people who ask once. We're going to be people who are receiving the Holy Spirit every day, all the time. Fill me again and again and again and again because we are leaky. So the idea, I know this is kind of theological and you get in there and there's tons of different people who parse it different ways. I think the heart of it is God wants to fill you when you're born again and he wants to fill you over and over and over again for the rest of your life. Are you asking him for it? Are you seeking him? Are you filled? You know? It's just, just you know, pray. And he says, ask, seek, knock. The Lord will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Why would he ask you to ask, seek, knock if you didn't need to ask, seek, knock for it? So those are just questions I have. And so, anyways, wrestle with that. Have some fun with it. But it's not to say you're a sub-Christian or, or whatever. If you fall into one of the other categories, just seek the Lord and ask for him to fill you every day. So, anyways, we see this distinct situation happening. And notice that it was the apostles who came and laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, which throws a whole new wrench into it. Right? So have fun with that. So they came to Jerusalem and they laid hands on the believers and they received the Holy Spirit. And in closing, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the hands of the apostles, he offered money to them and said, verse 19, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive this, the Holy Spirit. And Simon thought this was a trick, right? The, a, a magic trick you could learn, you could buy, you could purchase on TV and they send you the kit. Verse 20, but Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the what? The what? The gift. You can't buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of God with money. 
You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Talking to a believer, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope so that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Wow, holiness. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon thought that he could buy the Spirit of God. Peter tells him, hey, no way. You can't buy the gift of God with money. And this is where I want to close and and focus this, everybody. Listen, man's kingdom works on buying and selling. Man's kingdom works on buying and selling. Does it not? That's the world we live in, and it's okay. But that's not how God's kingdom works. How does God's kingdom work? Giving and receiving. That's how God's kingdom works. It works on giving and receiving. Different principle. Man is buying and selling. God's kingdom is giving and receiving. That's important. Write that down. This is why Jesus was upset in the temple when they were buying and selling the sacrifices to be given to God. They were getting there, making a profit off of it. No, this is something that is a free will. It should be given. You don't need to exchange the doves and charge tax to give to God. He got mad. Jesus went in there and goes, there are guys going around today telling, uh, today willing to give healing, but you see, the catches you must pay for it. Send in your gift. That's not how God works. No, we are conduits of God's grace, the grace he has given me. I am to give away. Peter points out what separated Simon from that ministry, why he couldn't have it. It was his heart. It wasn't right before God, you see. And Peter points out that he was full of bitterness and captive to sin. You see, this guy Simon, he was saved, but that didn't mean he was operating in the new life. A lot of us can be saved and operating in the old ways. A lot of us can be born again and still working in man's kingdom. And God is teaching us how to be in the new kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus came around and talked about it all the time. That can happen. I... God's showing me constantly where that is going on in my life. Apparently, the attention was drawn away from him when Philip came into the scene. He was the man. He had the power. And then Philip came in, and then he was the man. He was the power. There was this other thing happening. Focus began pointing really to Jesus. And I believe that when that happens, there's an ability within man to get bitter that the attention isn't back on you and you're looking at this other person and you're just following them going, wow, I wish I had what you have. And that was what was going on in his heart. He was bitter over it. And he was caught up in sin, just the way he was thinking about stuff, processing it. And Peter warns him, verse 22, here's the application Jesus, Jesus, uh, Peter told him, said, hey, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hopes that he may forgive you for having even such a thought in your heart. It was in his heart where it began. And so even as believers, we can be messed up about who God is and how he works. And you see, salvation cannot be earned or purchased. It cannot be earned or purchased. It can only be received. It can only be received by grace through faith in Jesus. And this is what truly sets Christianity apart from man-made religions. You cannot earn the forgiveness of God. It is a gift that you must receive. You can't earn it. 
We can't earn it. We can't pray enough, jump enough, do whatever enough, go to church enough. We can't earn it. It is given to us. He freely gives it to us. Did it cost him something? It cost him everything. It cost him his son. You cannot buy power in the kingdom of God. It is given by God as he desires. You can't buy or earn in the kingdom. We ask and receive. What are you lacking in the kingdom? Why do you think Jesus said, when you pray, ask and you will receive? Who's he talking to? His disciples, God's kids. What are you lacking in your life? Go to your father. You don't have to earn it, you ask. And how many times I I want to get my life in a certain situation so that then I can present and say, there, Lord, now I've earned it. Please give it to me. Instead of, I need help, Dad. Help. Dad, I need mercy. I need power. I need resources. I need, can you, I need forgiveness. Something that I don't have, will you give it to me? And he gives. We ask and receive. And, the, and then what happens is what I receive from him, I now obligated to give away. To give away. And you can't give away what you don't have. That's the way of our Father's kingdom. We give and receive. This is why Jesus said, forgive, because your heavenly Father has forgiven you. We give what we have received. We love because he first loved us. You see, all we have and are, they come from him. We are born again into a new kingdom of grace. So we ask God with right hearts and he gives us so that we would be blessed and then we bless others with whatever he's given us. Has he given you comfort today? In your suffering? What do you think he'd like you to do with that comfort that he's given you? Comfort others. Is he giving you forgiveness? What does he want you to do with that? Who needs forgiveness in your life? Grace, mercy, provisions. How can we say we love God and yet hate our neighbor? You see, if we love God, we're giving what he's given us. I can't hold that against them because he didn't hold it against me. Anyways, the kingdom goes on and on. And in verse 24, it says, Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you say will happen to me. And I love that. He responds, Oh gosh, help me. And that's how we should pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. And we pray that uh, as we look at your scripture that, Lord, there's so much uh, just asking of you. And we are a people, I know I am, um, bent on my own ability to do things or pride or what have you, instead of just simply coming to you and asking, Lord, help. Lord, may I have. Lord, please. Lord, help us to realize the opportunities in our lives and our hearts where we just need to ask. And I pray that you'd also quicken us to have the burden to give just as you did. You saw the need in our lives. We were alienated from you and yet you gave your son. And that was how you demonstrated love. And I pray that we would give in this manner of our lives to others. So God, would you bless this church? Would you fill us with your spirit? We ask for your spirit. Would you give it as you see fit, Lord? We pray that there will be opportunities this week to live out what we've learned.
And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.